This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part two of a three-part series spotlighting the Langley and Benack Construction Group. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, this is Clinton Butler, and this is part two of our three-part series on the construction law in the state of Texas. I am your host, uh, as I have been on the previous podcast, uh, one dealing with oil and gas and the other dealing with bankruptcy law in Texas. I'm a partner uh, here at Langley Benack. I serve as the uh, chair of the oil and gas section, but uh, I also have a practice that deals with other types of commercial litigation, including uh, contract disputes, fiduciary breaches, and construction law. And so this has been a good uh, podcast for me to get to be involved in because it's a area of law that I've done some work in, but uh, I could certainly use some education on. And the two gentlemen who are joining me here today uh, will be able to provide me and all of us with a bunch of education on the Pacific area that we're going to be talking about today, and that's construction defect cases. And today I'm joined by my uh, fellow partners at Langley & Manac, Ian McLenn and Steve Walrave. Ian, why don't we start with you? Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Clinton, I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Ian McClinn, and like yourself, I'm a shareholder here at Langley and Benack. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M in 1990, 1994. It's been so long, I can't remember. Um, and thereafter, I went to St. Mary's uh, University uh, and started practicing in 1998 uh, with the law firm of Shaddix, Compier, Wall, Raven, and Good, the vast majority of us now being here at Langley and Benack. Um, I have uh, practice in really two areas through the entirety of my career. One is construction defect litigation uh, and the accompanying surety issues, and then, of course, personal injury uh, defense. And so those are my two primary areas of practice, the vast majority being spent uh, with construction law issues. Great. And I'm also joined by my other fellow shareholder, Steve Walraven. Steve has over 45 years' experience in practicing insurance law. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and let the audience get to know you? Well, as you mentioned, I've been doing practicing law for over 45 years. Uh, insurance law has always been a part of it. Um, for those who may think of different things about insurance law, 
I represent parties to disputes over what insurance policies do and don't cover and what insurance companies should or don't have to pay. Uh, that's the area of insurance law that I've been practicing for ever. That's the that's what I do now pretty much full time. And one of the most common areas of insurance coverage law disputes have to do with construction defect litigation. Uh, anytime you have lawsuits and defect litigation, finding somebody to, to pay the tab, to pay to fix the problem is always at issue. And often at issue is uh, trying to get some insurance to pay for the problem. And that's a big part of what I do and have been doing for a long time. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Um, Ian, tell us how, how you found yourself getting into the construction defect litigation area. Uh, Clinton, absolutely. When I first started practicing law, um, Steve has always been one of my mentors um, and attempted to teach me insurance law over the years. Um, and I became familiar with or got associated with construction defect litigation because, like Steve says, they go hand in hand. And we have a former partner who's now retired, a gentleman named Roy White, um, who um, asked me to start helping him in construction defect litigation. Uh, I did, and I have been unable to escape ever since. And I, and I say that jokingly um, because I still get to work with um, my, the partners I love working with, and I get to handle... Um, litigation that can only be described as very interesting. What sort of, you know, what sort of trends are you seeing in the construction defect litigation that we're handling throughout South and Central Texas? I can describe three for you um, fairly quickly and offhand. One is um, what I characterize as the mass residential defect type litigation. This is where you have a development of a large number of residential structures in, a, in an area, um, and there are allegations that there is a single type of defect. I'll use stucco as an example. So we see a lot of those cases around um, where we have a group that comes in uh, and makes these common allegations or common assertions across an entire development. A second one is a little bit different. These are um, homeowners association type claims for either condominium um, or a group of homes um, or uh, apartment buildings where we have um, alleged defects to the structure, to the common areas, um, to the, the civil aspects of the project like grading. And so we'll have rather large number of parties that are involved in those types of cases uh, because we're addressing a myriad of alleged defects across the entirety of the development. And then finally, we, we're seeing this issue more and more in almost every case now uh, is the additional insured uh, and indemnity type claims between the defendants. Um, and so those are issues where I still get to work with Steve a lot um, to address those types of claims because obviously um, he stays much more current on the insurance issues. And so that's, that's where we get the good fortune to continue to work together. Right. Well, uh, it sounds like in construction defect litigation cases, it sounds like you are oftentimes having to herd a bunch of cats, that we're dealing with numerous parties to these types of litigation. Is that true? And if so, what sort of unique challenges does multi-party litigation present to you? 
Um, that is absolutely true, Clinton. I mean, you're 100% correct. Um, aside from, and I like your characterization, hurting cats, aside from doing things like scheduling simple depositions or court hearings, that's fairly rudimentary. But then what we get sometimes is we have a claimant or set of claimants that is making an allegation against one or more defendants and then downstream uh, against some additional defendants, third-party defendants. And what we see sometimes is some infighting between those entities over your work caused the damage. No, your work caused the damage. AI issues become involved. One party alleges they're owed indemnity by another party. And so we get um, some cross chatter in the background when we're dealing with construction defect claims. And yeah. management crosstalk can be a little difficult. Yeah, I, you know, in my limited experience in construction cases, my, what I often find, what I often find happens is that you know, you've got your plaintiff or your owner making your claim. And then it's just a series of, you know, think of it as like that final scene of Good, Bad and the Ugly, where they're doing kind of the triangle gunpoint where, you know, the, the contractor and the subs are trying to at one point tell the plaintiff, no, you don't have a defect. It's not that bad. While at the same time going, but if there is a defect, it's that guy's fault. Absolutely. And that's where experience um, comes to matter, knowing how to manage those conflicts, those claims, so as not to make the claimant's job easier um, by throwing someone else under the bus. You can preserve those claims, but knowing how to do it and make sure um, that you're not doing the plaintiff's job for them, it's very important. And that's that's where we um, rely and lean on our experience. Um, guys like Steve, guys like Bill Summers, um, to make sure that we are doing our jobs, but at the same time, not doing somebody else's job. Right. And that, that's a, that's a delicate line to walk sometimes because, you know, you, you want to defend the work, but at the same time, you want to make sure that that, that you're defending yourself individually and saying, look, if there is a defect, it, it's not me, brother. That's, that's generally how we approach it. Yeah. Well, Steve, We're not using the word bro though. But yes. Yeah, well, you know, I'm 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 very colloquial. And I so, guess. yeah, yeah, you know me. And so, Steve, turning over to you, um, you know, why don't you tell us what sort of trends you're seeing in the area of insurance coverage with regards to these defect defect cases? Well, um, you know, to follow up what you're just talking about hurting cats, one one of the components of where you're pointing your finger where you're going, who you're going to blame, uh, often turns on who can afford to pay the claim. And the party who may have money because they're solvent or may have insurance is much more likely to get the finger pointed at them. And sometimes everybody gangs up and, and points the finger as someone who ends up having no money and no insurance. So the, the uh, best rule of litigation is always sue the person that's got the money. Well, you're not going to get very far or make much money if, if you don't. And so uh, the old saying, I can see by your insurance that you must be the one at fault is, uh, has a lot of truth to it. Or I can see by your lack of insurance that you did nothing wrong. Uh, you, you look like you're a good guy there with your zero dollar policy. So uh, that, that is certainly a part of it. Um, the recent trends uh, that I have seen in, in this area 
have really been in the area of the endorsements that insurance companies are adding to insurance policies. Uh, once upon a time, an insurance policy that was issued to a general contractor or a subcontractor uh, was fairly common or, or had a lot of common elements. And you could pretty well predict what it would be there. The only difference might be the policy limits. What we're seeing now are uh, lots of different policies that have lots of different limitations. Some of them, some contractors will buy a policy and there's some fine print in there somewhere that says it doesn't cover construction defects. Often that's a big surprise to the contractor. It's like buying, it's like buying, the, auto, it's like buying the auto insurance that doesn't cover cars. Exactly. Um, uh, and they don't cover injuries to the employees on the job site. They cover almost nothing. Uh, there are other much narrower limitations, like they don't cover uh, multifamily construction, which may or may not be a big deal, depending on what that contractor does. Or they cover different types of work. Some of them have exclusions for roof work, which if you're a roofer, is a pretty big deal. If you're not a roofer, it's no big deal at all. So uh, there are a lot of specialized endorsements, some of which are uh, very difficult to ferret out. There'll be a reference, you know, only you only cover certain classifications which have numbers. You know, they cover classifications 9163J. Well, what does that mean? Or they exclude that classification. Um, but that's the trend I'm seeing is that in the construction field, the policies that are issued to contractors just have tremendous variety and there's no way to know what you have till you get in there and read it. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to talk about construction defect litigation claims from three different perspectives. Uh, the first perspective is that of the, um, is that of the plaintiff. The second perspective is that of the defendant. And then finally, I want to look at it from a third party defendant's point of view. From a plaintiff's perspective, Ian, tell me kind of what the what the difference is between, you know, what a plaintiff should expect in a residential defect case as compared to like a commercial defect case. Um, residential um, construction obviously is um, on, a, on a smaller scale, generally speaking. Uh, we have certain statutes like the Residential Construction Liability Act, uh, which are implicated uh, and govern things like notice to parties. Um, and so you've got to be able uh, to comply with those. You've got to be familiar with them, uh, both offensively and defensively. We deal with, um, generally on the plaintiff side, when you're dealing with those, we see them suing the general contractor or the developer. Um, so their focus is generally fairly narrow. They've got one, maybe two entities that are responsible for the construction defect that they are focused on. And then one thing they've always got to be uh, conscious of is where is this going to be litigated? Am I entitled to go uh, to a court or am I stuck with an arbitration provision? And that obviously um, affects the expense of it, the speed of the case, um, things like appellate review. And mm -hmm. so those are issues that um, residential claimants even commercial claimants uh, have to be familiar with and be cognizant of. What types of causes of action 
uh, is a plaintiff typically bringing in this context where there's there's a defect of some sort in the house? Ah, uh, okay. Well, um, I mean, that is basically, you know, what I'm seeing kind of boils down to everything from the roof to the foundation. The foundation's moving or cracking, the roof is leaking, the windows don't work. You're seeing all those sorts of claims that matters and that matters to insurance. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll address that a little bit. Uh, but the, the answer to your question, you, you generally almost always see negligence claim. You will see a, a uh, breach of contract claim among the parties that have a contract, like the owner has a contract with the general contractor, but typically does not have direct contracts with most subcontractors. Uh, the uh, architect and engineers may have contracted directly with the owner, or they may have been hired by the uh, general contractor. So you may have some, some uh, contract claims, may have some negligence claims. If you've got a consumer transaction, you may have a Deceptive Trade Practices Act case. As Ian just mentioned a minute ago, uh, the uh, Residential Liability Construction Act comes into play. And while it doesn't give a cause of action, it uh, kind of directs and limits how that cause of action might go. And then the last category that I routinely see is uh, a products liability claim against a manufacturer of a component from a window to an air conditioning unit to um, actually I've seen them in connection with uh, ready mix concrete that was delivered uh, and they alleged it, they used the wrong recipe mixing up the concrete. So those are the types of causes of action that I see and um, different insurance policies address those particular causes of action uh, with specific exclusions. There may be specific exclusions for um, negligent misrepresentations or warranties. There may be exclusions so, for contracts. So you need to, again, the various causes of action, some may be covered, some may be not. If I'm a contractor, and let's say that negligence is covered, but like DTPA claims aren't covered, and a an owner brings a claim against me saying, look, I've got a defective roof, and you're liable for me for this defective roof, both because you're negligent and because you violate the DTPA. Uh, is the contractor going to get coverage in that instance where there's there's a claim that is covered and a claim that isn't? Uh, yes and no. The One of the most important benefits of any insurance policy is they're going to defend the lawsuit. They're going to hire lawyers. They're going to hire ex experts. They're going to pay the cost of defense. If there are 10 or 100 causes of action that are alleged and 99 of the 100 are not covered, but one is covered, then they got to defend the whole case. Is that uh, even if the 99 claims are unrelated to the covered claim? If they're all in the same lawsuit, they pretty much all get defended. Okay. Now, when it comes time to pay the claim, if uh, a breach, con a DTPA claim gets submitted to the jury and the jury answers yes and finds that the damages to that are X, and they also submit negligence and the jury answers yes, they're negligent and says the damages associated with negligence are Y, the insurance company will only pay Y. They will only pay the damages. They will only cover the damages for the covered cause of action, not the damages for the other cause of action. They'll defend it all but they'll only pay the claims that are covered. So that's why I said yes and no. 
Gotcha. Um, Ian, kind of jumping off where Steve was talking about, tell us a little bit about what the DTPA is, how it interacts with construction defect cases, and why a, uh, why a client, an owner, may want to bring a DTPA case instead of just your ordinary negligence or contract case. Uh, that, that one's a, a fairly short responsive. It's a statutory um, enactment that provides consumers, which limits the number of folks who can bring it, um, certain claims regarding representations, breaches of warranty um, under the statute, and it provides for enhanced damages depending on the factual findings by the jury. Um, and it can also provide for attorney's fees in those situations where you don't have a contract per se. Um, so they're really the allegations or the reason that you bring them um, and the reason that we see them is um, it is an attempt um, to garner the recovery of some enhanced damages that you would not see in a negligence cause of action uh, and may not see in a breach of contract action. So it's just one of the tools that plaintiffs often use and that folks like Steve and myself have to fight um, to make sure that those enhanced damages are not available um, to the claimants. Like, you know, there's there's tri- trouble damages in the event of an intentional act on behalf of the contractor or something and like that's, that. That's the enhanced damages I'm talking right. about. Yeah, and that, that's when it gets dangerous for a, for a contractor is when you start looking down the barrel of an intentional DTPA claim or something like that. That and it's probably not covered under your insurance policy. That, so. Yeah, that, that, that could be bet the company litigation right there. Exactly. That, that, can, that, can, that can be the case. You may be on your own there. <laughs> you might you might just only see Steve for a very short amount of time in such an incident. Um, so, you know, we talked with Thomas Littlebridge in the first uh, podcast of this series, and we talked about kind of the chain of owner to general contractor to subs and how privity works and, and you know, just that relationship between those different layers. Uh, you know, you guys represent both general and subcontractors in your in your uh, cases, correct? Yes, sure. sir. What's the difference between representing a general contractor? You know, how do you how do you go about representing a general, as opposed to how you go about uh, representing a a sub? My point of view or Steve's point of view? Let's go for you first, Ian, and then we're going to go to go to Steve. Um, as the general contractor, you're generally defending the entirety of the project. You are generally the one that has the contract with the consumer. You are generally the one, um, if there is a DTPA allegation or an RCLA allegation, um, those fall upon you. Um, and so you are the one that is hurting the cats, the one that has the entirety of the defense for the entire scope of the work. For a subcontractor, it can be much easier um, unless it's your work that is at issue. Uh, but what I mean by that is, is you're not defending the entirety of the work. You're defending one trade um, or one um, small part of the entire scope of work. So I'll give you an example. Steve used it earlier. Windows and window installation. I represent building materials companies who s- sell windows and install windows. Okay, when I'm defending the windows... I'm not necessarily worried about the defense of the foundation um, or the civil site work. Um, I leave that to someone else, um, which is the subcontractor who did that work and the general contractor. So 
your scope of responsibility for a general contractor is, is much broader. Um, I, I'm reluctant to say it's much more difficult. It's just you've got a little more on your plate than your average subcontractor. Right. You're, you've, you've got a much broader array of problems as a GC yes. than you do as a sub. Well, and, and keep in mind, you're not just defending the plaintiff's claims, but now you're prosecuting your third-party claims against all of your subcontractors to get them to step up um, and essentially defend their own work. So you've got, that's where the indemnity and the AI comes in, the additional insured, insured claims. As, as the general contractor, you can get it both coming and going. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's a better way to describe it. Uh, Steve, tell us from your point of view, from insurance coverage, what's the difference in your practice between when you're representing a general and when you're representing a sub? Well, um, the general not only, ha you know, has to show, uh, it's often in the role of showing, you know, what was bad or, you know, it wasn't bad at all, the building's fine, but somebody's got to show whose fault it is, of course. You got, you got water in the building. Is that a plumbing leak? Is that a roof leak? Is that a window leak? Who was at fault? But they've also, and maybe two things leaked, maybe the roof and the window leaked. And somebody's got to show to trigger liability on that sub, say the window installer, and damages. Somebody's got to show how much of that water damage. For example, how much of the wet carpets and wet sheetrock and the cost of repairing the damage is attributable to a leak in windows, and how much is attributed to the uh, leak in roof, for example, or the plumbing leak, whatever the other source of water may be and so to, and to trigger coverage and expect an insurance company to pay they can't just say well the water damage to fix all the water damage out there is you know a million dollars yeah but i only represent the window installer how much do you say is my share and if there's never any evidence showing what that share is it's really hard for that contractor to figure out what he owes and for that contractor's insurance company to figure out what that insurance company should be writing a check for. So that's often the problem of the general contractor. Uh, from the point of view of the subcontractor, of course, the most common problem I see there is subcontractors often have the most limited insurance policies. Um, they may you know, cover what happens on Monday and not cover if it happens on Tuesday. And are some, I'm being silly there, but there's some very serious and not necessarily logical uh, exclusions. Like if it's a three-story apartment building and, and, and the, your limitation is on two stories, uh, did the, was the problem on the third floor windows or the second floor windows? And you got to prove up which and how much. Uh, so those are the kind of the problems with the subcontractors. Almost always there's a negligence claim uh, against the subs, and which is generally covered. But allocating damages, calculating damages, sorting that out is uh, really often very complicated for both suing that contractor and defending that subcontractor. Now's the time in the game show when we get to play who's is bigger. And I'm going to ask you guys both the same question. Tell me uh, who, 
what's the largest number of parties you've ever had in a construction defect case? Ian, you're first. <laughs> um, we actually had to we had to actually do a final hearing or an arbitration three or four years ago over in Houston, um, and I think we had thirty parties, but only twenty five participated in the final hearing. And, and so, what a nightmare! God loved that single arbitrator. He managed to hurt all the cats. But it took us three weeks so everybody could have their um, arguments heard. In three uh-huh. weeks in a hot conference room with at least 30 other people, um, it's it's not as comfortable as you'd think. Uh, it doesn't sound comfortable. Uh, all right. Can we beat him, Steve? No. He oh, man. We've had, you know, like 100 claimants. When the whole neighborhood says their foundations are problematic and sues, but uh, and I've had a number in the teens and a handful in the twenties of defendants. But I don't sitting here today. Maybe I had enough time. I'd think of one. But right now, I can't think of having anything in the thirties. That sounds like a miserable experience. I mean, it is. It is. It is crazy to 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 try and get that many people on the same page, uh, just to get them all in the room at the same time. Get that. I, you know. You have you have a four party litigation, and it feels like you know you're trying to move a mountain up a, mo- a mountain up the wall. So let's move now. Let's shift on to to the area that you guys do most of, which is defense work. Correct? Yes, sir. Okay, so let's let's look at a construction defect case uh, from the defendant stand- standpoint, that of either the uh, the contractor or the subcontractor. Uh, you know, we mentioned this earlier. Uh, arbitration clauses as a defendant in the case, as the general contractor, as a sub, do you typically want to move a case out of a jury case and into an arbitration case? Ian. Well, that that's like asking me um, whether I like a pretty girl or a pretty girl. Um, that's, there are, there are so many considerations that go into that. What jurisdiction are you in? Um, do you, is there a judge assigned to it yet when you get it? Who's that judge? Yeah, I guess there's a difference between a construction defect case in Plano than one in Corpus Christi. Absolutely. And so you've got to take all those things into consideration um, when making the decision that, yes, we want to participate in arbitration or no, we're going to look for a way out of it. Um, and so you've those are fact specific. Um, and you've got to say there's a universal rule. Yes, arbitration, no arbitration, um, I think is a little is a little misguided. You really need to pay attention to the facts of that case. And you may have things like technical defects, um, which are the construction did not comply with the contract specs or a building code, but it's not causing any damages. In those cases, you probably want to be in arbitration. You don't want the jury to hear this thing's broken, this thing's broken, this thing's broken, um, because then they kind of miss the point, but there are no damages. Right. So we, we have to take all those things into account when making the decision and the recommendation uh, or making recommendations to our clients about whether um, to go ahead and get in on the arbitration or to try to get out of it. And so as a general contractor, particularly, you're probably going to be the first and maybe the only party that is sued directly by the owner because you've got the privity issue, right? Correct. And so as a, as a general contractor defending a case, how do you go about then, you know, if, if it's really the sub who did the bad thing, how do you as a general contractor, as the only party that's been sued, how do you then try to shift some liability 
onto the subcontractor who, in your opinion, is, is the party that's really at fault if fault exists? Um, you can generally gauge that um, if you're representing the sub and you will be doing this if you're representing the general contractor. They are much more vocal in the defense um, if it is on them or a party that hasn't been brought in. Whereas if there does appear to be a defect and it's the sub that's sitting next to him, um, he'll pass the microphone to the subcontractor um, and allow them to try to defend their own work. Um, and, and that's, again, that's managing the cats, um, hurting the cats and trying to make sure that you're not doing somebody else's job, but at the same time, protecting your client. And, and what's the process, uh, Steve, maybe you can answer this. What's the process by which a defendant, a general contractor, let's say that you're my general contractor, Steve, you build my house and you hired, you know, 50 subs to build it. And I think there's a defect and I sue you and not only sue you because you're my contractor. You're the person I've got an agreement with. Uh, you're the person I'm in contract with. How does a defendant, a general contractor, how do they bring in to the lawsuit uh, these subcontractors that aren't initially named uh, by the owner of the uh, of the property? Well, the straightforward answer to that is the, the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure have set up a, a protocol, if you will, on how to do that. How you, you know, um, file the proper papers in the courthouse, ask uh, the sheriff to go serve that subcontractor with papers, and they become what you've already referred to as a third-party defendant with a responsibility similar to any defendant in that case. They have to hire lawyers and come in and appear. Um, there are some alternatives. Um, one of the situations you mentioned earlier is arbitration and the decision to arbitrate. There may be an arbitration agreement between you and me, the owner and the general, and that may not include a subcontractor. So if you want that subcontractor in that lawsuit sitting next to you, maybe you don't want arbitration. That goes into that sort of analysis. Um, another thing is if, if you think they're solvent or they have good insurance, um, sometimes if there's a good indemnity agreement or an additional insured situation, uh, you can persuade that subcontractor to take over your defense and defend the case without sitting next to you. Uh, sometimes that's also uh, where you can get the benefits of the relationship and the benefits of having them defend the case without necessarily making them a party. But, but there is certainly a procedure for bringing them in and asking them to respond to the legal process, to be there in court, to attend depositions, to uh, turn over documents, all the sorts of things that you would want another party in a lawsuit to, to be able to do and to have to do when requested. In what is a, what are inconsistent arbitration obligations and how does that affect uh, litigation? So that we've been kind of referring to it or dancing around it as we're having this discussion, but um, you may have, you've got these multi-level party arrangements where you've got a claimant, a general contractor defendant, numerous subs, and you may have sub-subs and um, you can go three, four, five levels deep. And you may have an arbitration agreement between either the um, owner and contractor or a contractor and a sub um, or between different levels of subs. 
and the other parties may not have an arbitration agreement at a different level. And so those are those are often um, issues that are handled on the telephone through negotiation um, or through joinder requests made by at the AAA, um, the American Arbitration Association, to join those types of parties. Um, but it's the folks who kind of get stuck in the middle sometimes who may have an arbitration agreement upstream but not downstream. Um, and so as a matter of efficiency, sometimes you try to push those other parties into arbitration as well. And Stephen, I want to shift a little bit to uh, coverage and insurance issues. Can you tell the audience uh, generally, like, what do different policies, particularly like a, a CGL policy and a builder's risk policy, what do those cover and what don't they cover? Well, as I touched on earlier, um, it's really hard to generalize because there's such a wide variety of terms out there. But, but, but essentially, there are two types of policies uh, or two types of coverages, probably which everybody has on their homeowner's insurance or their automobile insurance. Um, there is property insurance. If something happens to your home, there's a fire or lightning strikes it or a tornado uh, damages it, or similarly to your car. If lightning strikes your car or tornado blows it away, you will be paid for the value of your car on your policy. And that's a property policy. And sometimes that comes to play in construction defect situations when there's a, a, a water leak uh, coming in and causing damage. Um, and then the other type of, of coverage is liability coverage. And it applies when you get sued. Somebody sues you and says you hurt them, you damage their building, you uh, damage their car. And that's liability insurance. And the CGL policy is a type of, I mean, the CGL stands for uh, commercial general liability. That's to protect you if some third party sues you. And it is the third party, if anyone, who's going to end up getting paid. You'll also get your defense. Whereas the property policy is a policy you purchased. And it covers you for your losses. And you will get paid on your policy. Now, a builder's risk policy is the property policy that you might buy on a building while it is being constructed. Uh, covering a building under construction is much more complicated because, you know, uh, the uh, ownership of the um, property may be an issue. A supplier may uh, unload some lumber. Who owns it? Does, does that still belong to the supplier of the lumber or is the general contractor paid for it or a subcontractor? And once it's put into a frame, who owns it? Uh, and the other question is value. The building's half built. What is the value of all that? How is that valued if it all is lost in a fire? So the ownership issues and the uh, valuing issues are addressed by a builder's risk policy. That's a different breed from a typical policy because it addresses those sorts of problems that occur during construction about value and about who owns what. Once it's built, you will probably get a commercial, if it's a commercial property, you'll get a commercial property policy. Or if it's your house, you get your homeowner's policy. And that is insured to the perhaps replacement cost of the, of the property. And we know who owns it. The owner's clear. 
there aren't any contractors, subcontractors anymore, and there aren't any um, valuation issues. We know what you paid for your house. So your property policy, once it's completed, and your typical uh, builder's risk says once it's completed, we don't have any more coverage. So, so that's the difference between a commercial property policy and a builder's risk policy. Now, in the construction defect area, when you're suing somebody, there may be some coverage, uh, like a leaky roof. Obviously, if a storm uh, opens a hole in your roof, it may be because the roof wouldn't put on right. But there still may be insurance under the property policy for rain getting in and damaging the property. So there can be some overlap between the liability coverage and the property coverage. But uh, the property policy or the, the uh, builder's risk policy will pay the owner of the property, whereas the liability will policy uh, will only pay in the circumstance where someone is found to be at fault. Perhaps the roofer didn't put the roof on right. And it will not pay the roofer. It will pay the owner or whoever it is that's bringing the claim against that roofer. We see in these types of cases, Ian, tell us about uh, like statute of limitations, SOR, stuff like that. Um, well, obviously, when you have um, a defect or any other problem with the building, um, you've got to timely assert your claims. And so we've got two primary statutes in Texas that deal um, with that on the Civil Practice and Remedies Code. Um, one is obviously the statute of limitations that depending on the type of action that you're bringing, you've got so long to bring your claim. And it implicates something called the discovery rule. Um, you've got a certain amount of time to bring your claim when you knew or should have known of it. And then we've got something, and this, this came out of a case that Steve and I worked on years ago um, called the statute of repose. And that says, look, at a certain point in time, your claims are cut off regardless of whether you knew about them or not. It doesn't matter. And that's the statute of repose. And so you've got to look at when these projects were built and you've got to look for um, evidence of when they knew or should have known. And then in some situations, if it was built long enough ago, it just doesn't matter. The claims are barred. And Steve and I had a, a case called Galbraith versus Pachucha that went up to the Texas Supreme Court um, and um, it was pretty hotly contested. But at the end of the day, the court sided with our engineer who had designed um, some um, modifications to an existing structure um, more than 10 years prior to when he was sued. And so we had to go through that rigmarole up through the Court of Appeals and the Texas Supreme Court. And ultimately, the Supreme, Supreme Court said, look, after a certain period of time, those claims are cut off forever. They're, you, they're done. Too yeah. bad. At some point, you have to have your peace. It's, it's kind of like being married. And at some point, um, you can't bring up something your wife did more than X number of years ago, and she can't do that to you. <laughs> See, what's funny is my wife is not subject to any sort of statute of limitations. While I have a about a forty-five minute statute of limitations, I, so, I understand. You know, I, I was trying to I was trying to be equal, even-handed, um, but that's that's essentially what a statute of repose is. Um, you've well, got well, other things. Fair, fair and equitable is all in the eye of the beholder <laughs> in that in that instance. Absolutely, and of course there. There are so many other defenses out there that you've got to look at the facts and circumstances in each particular case. You've got, um, you know, we go back to the elements sometime. Do we have a duty? Did we breach that duty? Was it the proximate cause? What are the damages? Things like the economic loss rule um, that 
you got to be careful with that one as a defendant because you certainly don't want to take your client out of insurance coverage. Um, but you can do that with um, an argument on the economic loss doctrine. And and here's here's the master of the segue, Ian McClendon, doing his thing right here. I was just about to ask you, tell us what the economic loss rule is. Well, and, and it's a it's a doctrine that essentially says, look, if your damages are, and I'm gonna I'm gonna boil this down and simplify it greatly, but if your damages um, arise from the subject of a contract, then you may lose your negligence claim or the right to make negligence claims. Got to be it, careful with that because remember what it, kind of claims yeah. are covered under your insurance policy. Steve? <laughs> well, there's no universal rule, but there are policies that say if it's a contract claim, no coverage. If it's a negligence claim, maybe coverage. So um, in asserting defenses like economic loss rule, in pushing something toward being a contract claim, you may be pushing it out of insurance coverage. So, I mean, that's just one of the strategic decisions that, that we have to make when we're, we're representing our clients, um, you know, look at the big picture and in a small picture it may look good, but look at the big picture, it may be bad. And, and that's just uh, part of what we do. Well, I want to end here today with just, you know, kind of the, the general, uh, you know, from a defense perspective, you know, the, the urge to resolve the case, you know, the, the, so oftentimes as a defendant, and I, I go on both sides, I'm, I represent plaintiffs, I represent defendants. Uh, oftentimes my marching orders when I'm a defense attorney is, get me out of this case as fast as you can. Uh, and, you know, that, that's oftentimes the, uh, the desire. But Ian, you know, do you sometimes have to resist that urge to resolve the case because there is a potential that if we if we don't go and fight this case, if we set a precedent here, this could have disastrous effects for our business and this industry going down the line. Absolutely. It's a conversation that we have um, with the client in every case. You've got to talk about how many of these kinds of cases do you have? How many could you have? Um, if we get um, a thousand of these, will you be able to get insurance coverage to operate your business? And so when we, when we get a specific type of case, we're looking at the case and the urge always comes in and what we think are low value cases, it would only cost me 10, $20,000 to resolve this case. Um, and there's a, there's a strong urge to get the checkbook out, write the check and make that claim go away. That can be short sighted. Depends on the situation, depends on the client, but you've got to keep in mind, are there going to be 300 claims that follow on after this um, asking for ten dollars and $20,000? Or do you make yourself what we call a hard target and make it something where it is not worthwhile for them to come after your client in the future? Maybe, they, maybe they've decided those houses don't really have that deficiency or that defect, um, and we're going to move on to the next one. And I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here. Uh, it was a it was a model perfected by Allstate on auto claims years ago. Um, they just made themselves a hard target. It's yep. a consideration that you have to look at um, on behalf of contractors because they don't want to be known as the group that pays every claim. Pretty soon you have a yeah. lot of claims. You know, I had a law professor who who represented Walmart, and he said that. 
every once in a while, I'd have to convince Walmart to spend, you know, $150,000 to defend a slip and fall because we had to establish a, a course of business that, look, just because you make a slip and fall claim doesn't mean you're getting paid. You know, we got to try and win one or two of these every once in a while just so that we we put a understanding into the other side that we're not going to be pushovers. And sometimes you just need to set what are the value of these cases in this geographic area for this type of claim? And yeah. we all we all think we know what the value of a case is. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, it's an arbitrator or a jury that decides. And sometimes you have to go try one of those cases, two of those cases, three of those cases to find out what are they really worth? Right. Right. Stephen, what, how do you see that from your perspective? You know, from from an insurance coverage perspective, that uh, that desire to just get out as cheaply as we can, opposed to, you know, setting a precedent or maybe having to stand your ground and fight on a particular issue. Well, that's that's um, I mean, insurance companies sometimes, uh, Ian, I think just mentioned Allsight, uh, do sometimes want to take a firm stand on a particular issue and uh, set a precedent that uh, will hopefully be followed and they can use in future cases. Uh, the, the situation where uh, Ian came up is often a source of conflict between, say, a contractor or a, or a building material supplier and the insurance company. The insurance company may not have a lot of those claims. They may not want to spend $150,000 defending this particular claim because they may not be involved in the next one. On the other hand, that supplier of steel or concrete or windows or whatever it is, they may see that they've got a long-term issue of claims coming up and they don't want that claim to get settled uh, for $10,000, 10,000 times. They want to establish that there's nothing wrong with their window and that they aren't going to be writing big checks anytime somebody sends them a lawsuit. That's so right. that's uh, that's certainly a source of tension between uh, your contractor and your and their insurance company, and that's certainly something that that I unfortunately have to deal with on a on a regular basis. Well, Ian and Stephen, I want to thank you very. I want to thank you both very much for uh, joining us today. This has been both a very informative, very fun talk, uh, as most of my conversations with you guys are. And uh, I want to, on behalf of the audience, give our appreciation for you guys coming in today and sharing your time, your knowledge, your experience, and your expertise in these areas. Uh, and so, you know, wrapping up, you know, these construction defect cases sound like they are, you know, complex, you know, sometimes numerous party cases that really require, you know, a person who's got expertise, experience, and knowledge in these types of cases in order to try to effectively guide you through them. Is that a statement that you guys would agree? And, and sometimes it's not just one person, Clinton. It's you've got to have a team mm -hmm. that can, um, some folks are very good at some things. Some folks are very good uh, at other issues. And so you've got to have a group of individuals who can help you navigate um, those types of issues. Technical construction defects, you know, more than happy. We get into the insurance coverage issues. Um, Steve's phone is the first to ring. 
um, because that, and you've got to have those, and there are other issues that come up in these cases, appellate issues, things like that. And that's, that's why it's good to be here um, yeah. because we have access to appellate lawyers, insurance coverage lawyers. Every once in a while we have a contractor go bankrupt. It's an, it's unfortunate. Um, but walking into the bankruptcy court, we've got to have someone who can do that. And so fortunately having that, that team model to guide you through that difficult um, maze um, of issues that can come up in a construction defect case is best. No, it's definitely one of the best parts about working here at Langley is that, you know, if there's ever an area that I'm not an expert in, which there are many, uh, I can just walk down the hall and find somebody who is. So, Steve, Ian, thank you guys very much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this has been Clinton Butler. I want to thank you both or thank everyone. Uh, let me start over there, Gabby. This is Clinton Butler, and I want to thank you all for joining us here today. On our next episode, we'll be discussing construction delay claims. And I'll be joined by Bill Summers, who has over 35 years of practicing construction law in Texas. He is by far the go-to person for the most complicated construction matters in this state. Uh, he has been a mentor to me, and I think he's been a mentor to anybody who's touched construction law, probably here in San Antonio or, or even in a greater area. Um, accompanying Bill will be an uh, expert by the name of Johnny Holstead, who works with uh, SOCOTEC, uh, a very sharp expert in uh, structuring uh, delay claims. And so we'll be talking, uh, the three of us, on our final episode. I want to thank everybody for joining me for episode two of the Langley Banag podcast series, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Banak podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybanak.com or call us at 210-736-6600.